I'm going to read from verses 11 down to the end of the chapter. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's an amazing passage because it speaks about unity in Jesus. It speaks about worship and what it means that we draw near to the Father and have fellowship and communion with Him. That we actually now, as the church, are the temple. And for these Ephesian believers hearing this, they knew what temples were. Now, they, they may not have been thinking of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem where the animal sacrifices were held, but they had a temple to Aphrodite and Apollo and all the Greek gods, right? You read Percy Jackson, and they had temples in Ephesus to all of those gods. And this is the place where God, the gods in their world, were supposed to be manifest, to be localized. And here we see that we join together, grow into a holy temple in the Lord, a place for the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. More on that later, but this brings us to this subject of worship and unity and being a new community of faith. And what we see in this passage is that we become united not so much by reasoning it out and, and rationalizing it, but by remembering. The word remember is used over and over in this passage. And verse 11, where we're starting today, picks right up from verse 10, where we ended last week, that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are His poema in the Greek. We are His handiwork, His work of art, the church. And that now He's going to just start reflecting on what it means to be the church, the community of faith, this united group of believers. And He says that we are brought together 
not only for unity, but for worship. And that's going to be verse 18. In fact, the driving verse that we're heading to is verse 18. In him, Jesus, we both, in the context, Jew and Gentile, anybody, we draw near to the Father in Jesus by the Spirit. That's what we have now. This is incredibly good news, isn't it? That the one who made us, the one who has rights over us, that the one that we sang by all rights should punish us for our rebellion instead loves us and gives us his son so that we could be with him forever. Which goes back to chapter one. What we heard in that very opening sentence that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in His presence. He sees us as His inheritance that He's receiving to Himself, and now He's just reflecting on it in chapter 2 and saying, listen, this is really good news. That old covenant that had a dividing wall of partition between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. And now for, for us, I mean, I would assume the vast majority of us in this room who are not Jewish, we were without hope and without God, but we've been brought here. We've been welcomed into the family so that we could be with the Father forever. Now, what does this have to do with worship? Well, worship is one of those words that intuitively we know because we're all worshipers. Even if you're not a Christian here this morning, you are a worshiper. You worship something. Now, it could be that you look in the mirror and you worship yourself. You say, yes, your majesty, as it were. It could be that you worship success. You worship your name and lights. It could be that you worship pleasure. And you want to find your joy and satisfaction in drinking and drugs and all of those things. Our, we were created by God to worship. And the problem of sin is that we no longer worship God, we worship the creation, whatever that is. But Paul here is talking about worship as a response. Worship is a response to, to this good news of the gospel. Now, even our worship that is idolatry, which we, when we don't worship God, it's a response to something. Maybe we find temporary pleasure in a relationship and then we begin to worship that other person. It's a response to this pleasure. We find that it doesn't always satisfy, it doesn't always last. In fact, the only worship, the only response that is satisfying is to the one who made us. That's what Paul's getting at. And the biblical language around worship, I wish I could walk you through my worship class at Cornerstone Seminary, but there's three words in the Bible that orbit this language of worship, and the first one is the one we're just going to sit on in this sermon is the word remember. The other two are submission and service. And I find it fascinating that both the Old and New Testament translate the word submit as worship and translate the word serve as worship. Because they flow together really well. Think about it this way. If you are not serving God, why aren't you serving? Well, it's because you're not submitting to Him as King. You're wanting to be your own King. And if you're not submitting to Him as King, why is that? 
Well, because you're not remembering who he is and what he's done. You're not remembering that he's the God who made you, that he so loved the world he gave his son to die for your sins, to bring you into right relationship. And so remembrance is at the heart of everything. Remembrance is the foundation. And we can motivate people a lot of different ways. I can motivate you with guilt. Maybe I say, well, you need to serve the Lord and you're not serving, so I'll use guilt. Or maybe I motivate you with fear. Fear of punishment, fear of being outcast, fear of not being in the right circles. Or maybe I motivate you with peer pressure. All the cool kids are doing it. Serving the Lord. I don't know if that's true, but uh, that sort of motivation, those are all inferior motivations. Why? Because they don't last. They might motivate us for a season, for a time, for even years, but they don't motivate us forever. The only thing that will motivate us is having our affections, our desires changed. That's it. To uh, oversimplify, Jonathan Edwards' great thesis is that we basically do what we want. We always do what we want. So when we want something else more than God, we, we follow that. And that's called worship. So how do we change our affections and desires? We can't in and of ourselves. That's what Scripture says. That's what we saw last week. We were dead. But God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive. By the Spirit, our desires are made new. And it's not by works, it's by faith. That's what we saw last week, that we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's not of works, it's a gift of God, lest any of us would boast and brag. And ironically, if we were boasting and bragging, we'd turn back to worshiping ourselves. Look how great I am. Look at what I've done. Now the reason I'm going over this in, in great detail is because this idea of remembrance, this is really going to help you tomorrow morning when you wake up. This week, thinking about what you have to face, your trials, what's the first thing you think about when you wake up? What's the last thing on your mind when you go to bed? Are you prone to forget who God is and what He's done for you? That's the easiest way to fall down in trials, isn't it? Is to forget that we have a God who's for us, that so loved us He gave His Son, and if He did not spare His Son, how will He not with Him Freely give us all things, Romans 8. That He's committed to us, that the Spirit is a down payment and pledge of our inheritance, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Remembrance is a key theme in, in worship. And this idea of remembrance, the word remembrance is not always used. Sometimes it's the concept to meditate, to, to lay upon the heart, to not forget. And here Paul begins, he says, remember, verse 11, that at that one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember, verse 12, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel without hope and without God. It starts very similar to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, doesn't it? Not flattering, not something I really want to remember but it's good to remember where we were apart from Christ. 
to remember how great a salvation it is now that we have Jesus. And, and so in this passage, by remembering that we were far off and now brought near into this new community of faith, we are now able to worship the Father as He intended because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our worship is acceptable to Him. We draw near to Him. We can come into His presence. And so my first point in verses 11 to 13 is remember that we were formerly far off, but now we're brought near. Again, Paul is not wanting you to simply wallow in this idea that you're far from God because that's what was true before Jesus. You're not far from Him anymore if you're in Jesus. If you believe the Gospel, you've been brought near. Now, you may not feel like you're near to God. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe your sin. Maybe temptations. Maybe just the cares of life make it feel like God is so far from you. You ever have that feeling when you pray and it, it feels like it bounces off the ceiling? It doesn't even make it to the Father. I felt that way. And so what we have to do is remember that that's not true. Remember that, oh, that was the case when I was far from Jesus, that He didn't hear my prayers, but now that I'm a Christian, now that I've put faith in Jesus, He's near. He's near to me. And so Paul says, verse 11, remember the nature of your, your past you were pagans who didn't worship God. You, your sin in your life, you were despicable in your own eyes and in God's eyes, as it were. Verse 11. <laughs> you were Here he says the Ephesians, they were called the, quote, uncircumcision. That, that's a racial slur. We don't often think of it that way, but that's what the Jewish people were saying about uncircumcised people. It was not meant to be a neutral language. It was meant to be a slur. And if you've ever been put down for your looks or your accent or your parentage or your origin or your height or any of the circumstances of your birth, then you have some idea of what Paul is telling them to remember, as it were. You were called the uncircumcision. And isn't it amazing that that word Gentile in our English language, that just means anybody who's not Jewish. And it's not a neutral word. It was a word that was meant to, to be derogatory. And then he goes on to say, uh, made in the flesh by hands. It was also a negative phrase. It was used to refer to pagan idols and temples that are useless because they're made by man's hands. So all of the Gentile life was considered worthless and pagan and derogatory and inferior and Paul says remember that you were this is what was considered of you and then verse 12 like you were treated poorly in verse 11 but then in verse 12 there really was a legitimate problem it wasn't merely a racial slur it wasn't merely bad attitudes it was you were separated from Christ you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And the important thing about that is that you were strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning the promises that God gave to His people, you were without hope and without God. What an incredible thought. 
that Paul's just here saying, this is what was the reality prior to the coming of Jesus. If you wanted to draw near to God, you had to go to Jerusalem and you had to go into the court of Gentiles if you were a Gentile. And that's the closest you could get to the manifest presence of God on the earth. And you had to become Jewish if you wanted to draw any more near to God. But now, verse 13, in Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what Paul does here is there is a sense in which he's saying these reminders of alienation are so heavy and dark that it can make us feel like we're gasping for spiritual air. However, he doesn't leave us there. He he says in in an essence, remember your chains, but remember they're gone. Remember at one time you were in prison, but now you're free. Remember at one time you were dead, but now you're alive. Remember at one time you were blind, but now you see. You're not there anymore. That's what was true. What's true of you now is you are in the family of God. You are now part of the promise. You now have hope. This is so important to remember. Why? Because tomorrow you go back to work. You go back to your trials. Even this afternoon. You come away from this break of being together with the people of God and you face the reality of your burdens. And Satan would love to tempt you to think that God is far from you. Maybe it's you, tempting you to think you've outsinned the grace of God. Tempting you to think that you've got to clean yourself up before you can draw near. Tempting you to think that you've got to do more, be better, Nike theology. Just do it. That's a lie. Christ did what we couldn't do. And He brought us near. So remember your new identity, verse 13. You are in Christ. Notice it's contrasted with verse 11. You're no longer in the flesh. You are now in Christ. You've been brought near, verse 13. Near to Jesus and near to one another. You see, when you want to call yourself a failure, a liar, a hypocrite, a pervert, a betrayer, your father calls you his child because you're in union with his son. That is profound. That is hope. That is joy. That is something that the world cannot take from us. And it's through his blood, verse 13. We are united to Jesus and we have the power of His blood to take away our sin. My identity in Jesus means my identity is no longer fixed by my birth, determined by my heritage, or spoiled by my sin. That's the reality. It's renewed. It's transformed. It's reborn by my Savior's blood. We are in Christ. We're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. That is really, really good news. Because I don't know about you, but I sin every week. Every day. And I wish I didn't. And the, more I, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I see the perfect holiness of God and I see that I don't measure up. It's like this arrow of my understanding of God's holiness is going to heaven to infinity 
and my growth in holiness is never m- making it. It's, it's, it's like, it seems like it's flat, but maybe I am becoming more like Jesus. I have to believe the promises. Well, what fills that gap? It's not our works. It's not our righteousness. It's the finished work of Jesus. The cross fills that gap. The cross is what is sufficient for us to stand before a God holy and righteous to where the Father no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our failures. He sees the righteousness of His Son. He looks at us and He is pleased and happy and wants us to be near Him. That is incredible. That's good news. Well, this pattern was true in the Old Testament as well. Israel was called to remember over and over and over again. They had the Passover. That was the highest point of their year. The Passover. And what were they supposed to do in the Passover? Remember. Remember that God brought them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the Promised Land, and established them as the people of God. That's a really good thing to remember. Now, we have a new covenant ordinance to remember and we're going to do it here after the sermon to take the table to remember jesus body broken for us his blood shed for us they also had these stones of remembrance maybe you've heard the word ebenezer because you watched uh, christmas carol ebenezer scrooge well ebenezer is a hebrew word it comes from two Hebrew words, actually. Even, which is stone, and atzer, which is help. God is a stone of help. And so these Ebenezers, these stone of helps, were to be placed in Israel, either as altars, like at Bethel, or in the River Jordan. So Joshua told the parents, the dads, as you walk with your kids by the River Jordan, you point to these Ebenezers. And you remember this is how far God brought you. That He brought you out of Egypt and right through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And this is what Paul is calling us to do is to remember. Remember how far God has brought us. What He's done in our lives to change us, to save us. I, I'm amazed. I, being back home here living near where I grew up in Vallejo and running into old friends, I am amazed at how many of them ruined their lives, went to prison, went to jail, died, lives cut short because of sin, because of bad decisions, because of a lifestyle of rebellion against God. I just heard the other day that another high school friend of mine had died. And it doesn't cause me to think I'm so much better than them. It causes me to think, well, by statistics, it's the grace of God that I'm still alive. That I, that I haven't ruined my life. That I haven't made a wreck of things. That I'm not lifelong in jail. This is... Paul's idea of remembrance here is remember where you were and remember where God brought you. This is meant to be hopeful, which is why he moves on in verses 14 to 18 to speak about remembering Christ has brought peace to us through His reconciling 
death. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's between Jew and Gentile. And he did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And reconcile us both in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now this word reconcile in verse 16 is a great word. Catalasso, it was used of ships. When uh, joints in a ship, they were putting them together, they would put the ship together so the ship wouldn't leak, these wood joints, and it was this word to reconcile as they would bring it together. Uh, What I always think of is my brother Kevin, when he was young, he went up with the Boy Scouts to go snow skiing at Kirkwood. And he's following these older kids, and they go up to the wall, Double Diamond Black Run at Kirkwood. And Kevin, at 12 years of age or whatever it was, is not a Double Diamond uh, snow skier, nor is he today. And so what did he do? He fell off the wall. And he broke the ball of his shoulder. He broke the ball off. It was just hanging by the meat. And the, the, you could imagine the bone was just shredded. And my dad gets the message. He wasn't up there with him. And he gets the phone call. And the doctors up at Tahoe are saying, we don't want to do surgery because it might affect the growth plate. And then he could have a short arm. And so we're going to try to put it back in and set it. So they took x-rays before. And they set the bone. And they took an x-ray after, and it perfectly reconciled. It perfectly fit, and he never had to have surgery. You can go ask him how painful that was. I'm sure he'll tell you the story. But the idea is the reconciling. These, this bone that was fractured and splintered, when it was set back together, it fit perfectly. And he's never had a problem with his shoulder, as far as I know. Probably has other issues, but not his shoulder. This is what Jesus has done as He has reconciled us to God and us to one another. This is what the cross does. Christ's blood brings peace. Verses 14 and 15. You know Isaiah 9, that great promise of a Messiah that He's going to be the Prince of Peace? He's the one who brings peace and makes peace because He is peace. I was at the Heritage Presbyterian service this morning and they're a little more liturgical than us and they had a whole time of greeting one another that they called a time of peace. And all the people did as they walked around here just a couple hours ago as they said, peace be upon you. May God's peace be with you. May you have peace. What an incredible thought that this idea of shalom, the Hebrew idea of peace, is this idea of life is the way it ought to be. Is Barbara okay there? Okay. All right. So this idea of peace, life is the way it ought to be. Intended. Let me just go ahead and pray for her real quick. Father, thank you for the opportunity to pray for Barbara as we gather. uh, Whatever she's going through right now. Physically, would you heal her body, uh, minister to her? We love her. We're grateful for her. 
Jesus' name, amen. So this idea of peace, this is incredible. This is uh, Jew and Gentile didn't have peace. There was a dividing wall, a barrier, but Jesus brings peace. And not only peace in relationships, but peace in worship. Peace in the, in the temple, in communion. And so this is what God is doing to create a new humanity. Verse 15. He says he's making one new man in the place of two. It's why you see verses in Galatians that say there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ. What does he mean? It doesn't mean the distinctions are erased. We, we obviously can look around the room and see the distinctions of gender and of our her- ethnic heritage and where we grew up and age and all of those things. It means those distinctions are no longer relevant when it comes to worship, drawing near to God. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We are all saved the same way, by grace through faith. And so this is, this is really good news. And so that's the last thing he says, is he says, this is what's reconciling us to God. And I want to go to verse 18. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to those who were far off, peace to those who were near. But this is where he's been heading the whole time. Verse 18, for through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. In one spirit to the Father. The final reason Paul urges peace is that Jew and Gentile share access to the Father by the same Spirit through Jesus Christ. It's why we're called a priesthood of believers, all of us. It's why we can call God Father. And notice all of the Trinity is at work in this verse. Jesus is the one that we are in, in Him. We are drawing near to the Father By the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I would remind you that in chapter 1 he said that the Spirit is the down payment and pledge of our inheritance, verse 14. And then he prays that you would know what kind of power, verses 15 to 23, are at work in your life. The resurrection power of God by which he raised Jesus from the dead. In the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you come to chapter 2, verse 18, and you're drawing near to the Father by the Spirit, you're realizing this is the resurrection power of God, the third person of the Trinity, who is the Lord and giver of life, John 6, 63, who is working on your behalf to bring you near to God. All of the Trinity is saying, draw near. We are for you and not against you. That's incredible. Because some people make it seem like the Father's always against you and it takes the Son to calm down the Father. Or the Father is remote and distant and it takes the Spirit for you to have the the power to even get into His presence. And that's not what we see here. This was the Father's plan in chapter 1. This was His purposes in love. And He sent His Son to die for you, and He poured out His Spirit to bring you to Him. And all three persons of the Trinity are at work to bring you into communion and fellowship with them forever. Not just today, but forever. 
And so we finally remember our new privileged position in Christ, verses 19 to 22. Verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I would say, verse 19, remember that you're dear to the Father. Dear to Him. What do I mean by that? You're part of His family. You're part of His family. I'm not trying to embarrass my children, but last night for the first time in seven months, I had all of my children in my house. And we sat and watched old movies, family movies. And I was, I I mean, I could die and go to heaven. I was happy. Other than I'm doing this fasting thing and I couldn't eat after 6 p.m., so I was cranky about that. But I was really happy that my family was there. Your Father in heaven considers you family. Look at verse 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What's he saying? You're part of the family. You're welcome. You're seated at the table. You have refrigerator rights. You're welcome to be there. He wants you there. Verse 20, you're also secure in Him. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So this image that Paul brings up is you're part of the house of God. And he's thinking of a family, but he's also thinking of the building because then he goes to the picture of a foundation and he says, the apostles and prophets built the foundation and the cornerstone is Jesus. And what he's getting at is that this new community of faith is a house, but not just any house, a holy house, a temple. He's moving from the family metaphor to the temple metaphor, saying that the temple is not just a a place of worship, it's a family place of worship. It has an inspired foundation, the apostles and the prophets. No one can question our rights to these privileges Because the inspired Word of God through the apostles and prophets has declared it to be so. Isn't that incredible thought? This is, of course, why we preach the Bible. Why we hold to the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Scripture is because it was given to us from the Father through both the apostles and the prophets. The apostles are the New Testament uh, writers of Scripture and the prophets are the Old Testament writers of Scripture. And that's the foundation. And then what's the cornerstone? The cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Himself. We're built on Him. He, the cornerstone, that's something that's foreign to us. Uh, In our construction, we don't use cornerstones anymore. But in older construction, the idea was that the cornerstone was the first stone put down and every other stone was measured against that and related to it and the cornerstone held everything together. The closest thing we would have would be like in this roof picture here. We have these beams that are holding the roof up. Now imagine if there was just one beam, one center beam that was holding everything up. If you don't have that center beam, you don't have the roof. If you don't have the cornerstone in this ancient way of doing the foundation, you don't have a solid foundation. So Jesus is the cornerstone and you're growing into this temple every other 
The position of every other stone is determined by Him. But He doesn't end there. He doesn't just say that you're precious to the Father, you're secure in Jesus. He says that you are useful to Him. Verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What a, what a picture. I don't think of anything... Uh, I don't ever think of a building being alive and growing. I mean, maybe these new uh, environmentally, you know, conscious. Uh, I, I took it doesn't matter. I don't even want to use that illustration. I took a class at Davis and we were looking at ways to do roofing that would be create energy through photosynthesis. And so they were living buildings. But that takes us away from anything I'm talking about. And I chose to say it rather than skip it and i don't know why forgive me (laughs) i got a laugh out of it so then that just encourages me to keep up with that kind of stuff the whole structure joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit what a picture that this temple is no longer the building in jerusalem It's us, and it's growing. But it's not being built so that the Spirit will come in. The Spirit is already here, who's the one who's giving the life to grow the building so that as we grow together, we will be offering up worship that is to the praise of the Father's glory. The the presence of God in our midst is a reality. And He is bearing fruit and life in us, using us, so that us as the church are the witness. Think about it this way. In the Old Covenant, if you wanted to get into the presence of God, you would go to the temple in Jerusalem. And depending upon you know where you were at in in these clean and unclean laws you could go in a certain way but only the high priest could go into the holy of holies and only once a year and even when he went in once a year there was this fear that he was going to be struck dead but now any of us all of us can draw near not only that this idea of being built together is that if God is dwelling in our midst. The place where people come to see God now, the manifest presence of God is no longer Jerusalem. It's us. What a privilege. It's a little intimidating, I'll be honest. The idea that the place on earth where people come to see God is us. Well, man, we already heard in this chapter there wasn't really much in us to commend us. But this is what the Spirit of God is doing in us. He's taking, as Paul says to the Corinthians, cracked pots, clay pots, vessels of, that were throwaway, paper plates in our uh, context. And he's saying, I'm taking these paper plates, these clay pots, so that the glory's not in you, but in God. But He is using us. And the Spirit's indwelling us. To look at it another way, the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, that first prototype temple where Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden. The presence of God which was lost because of sin. The presence of God that filled the tabernacle and later the temple 
above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies is now inside of us. We've been born again, regenerated. We're part of the new covenant. We are the temple of God, the place where God's glory dwells. And so by remembering that we were far off, remembering that we're brought near into a new community of faith, means that we are able to worship as God intended because we're filled, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. This is, Paul's going to go on in chapter 3 to reflect upon this impact for the gospel and then remind us again that we need to know how deep and high and wide and long the love of Christ is so that we're filled with all the fullness of God talking again about that temple image of being filled with the presence of God what an incredibly powerful reality and so really the application is simple here this afternoon isn't it what are we to do we're to remember we're to remember where we are apart we're apart from Christ and where we are now we're to remember everything Jesus has done for us we're to remember that God is our father And that the Spirit of God is indwelling us. We're to remember that we're the temple. And when that happens, it changes our affections so that then we worship God and serve Him. Back to my three words. If you're remembering who Jesus is and what He's done, then you're submitting to God, aren't you? You're saying, I'm yours, Lord. Do with me whatever you want. And the whatever He wants is a life of service and worship, of of pleasing Him, of glorifying Him, of loving people. And this is what it means to be the church, the new community of faith in this new covenant where we have forgiveness of sins, unity with one another, peace. Imagine if this reality was seen in our community, if the Lord would see fit to use us as a witness here of what true peace, true unity, true love looks like in the power of the Spirit. It would change our community. Well, that's what revival is called. And we need to be praying that God would see fit to send revival again in our context. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great reality and reminder of everything we have. Thank you that we are the body of Christ and that our unity in Jesus, it reconciles us to you and it reconciles us to one another we want to be a people who remember who tell the story over and over and remember everything that you've done in jesus remember that we were far off and we were brought near remember that we had no hope and now we have a great hope that will never put us to shame Remember that we had no home, but now we have a kingdom that will not be shaken, that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We have a home. We have a hope. We have peace. We have joy, unshakable. We have a family. We have life. We have love. Oh, Father, remind my brothers and sisters of this. Not only now, but this afternoon when trials come. Tomorrow morning when they wake up and they face whatever sin that that they face in their life, whatever struggles, 
May they remember who you are and what you've done in Jesus. That they're not alone. They have your spirit to strengthen and empower them. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.